Jen Wilkin has just entered the empty nest season of life, so she knows a thing or two about parenting. At our national conference, she addressed a topic that's not talked about enough, building community in the home. We hope you benefit from her experience and wisdom. I get to talk to you tonight about the importance of building community in the home, and it's something I feel really strongly about, but it's a really strange time of life for me to be talking about this, because back in the last week of August, we sent our last child off to college, and so it's just Jeff and me building community in the home right now, and it's been basically fine. Like, once we knew that Calvin was all settled in and things were going okay, we kind of exhaled, and we were like, gosh, we could, like, just eat hard-boiled eggs and Ritz for dinner every night because there's nobody here. Uh, and then this morning, because I just live right up the road, I was preparing the last points in my talk, and I was sitting there thinking hard about community, and Jeff came in, and he sat down next to me on the couch, and he sat, and he turned his back to me like this. And I was like, what is happening right now? And then I realized that due to a diminishing of community in the home, it was now my responsibility to scratch his enormous back when he turned it to me. I love him. He is 6'5". He has a really big back. So I was like, I have delegated that out to children across the years. And I was like, oh, is this it for the next like 40 years or however long? Oh, who are we kidding? We don't have that long. So community in the home is changing for me. Uh, It's changing a lot, but uh, I have to say that the years of having our kids with us were years of deep and rich community, and it occurred to me that one of the first places I heard the concept of community was actually not as it related to our homes, but as it related to our home group at our church, that at our churches, and I would imagine at your church you have the equivalent of that. You may not call it a home group, you may call it a community group, or we have a million different names for the same thing, right? But, but why, why do those things exist? Because we recognize that within the family of God, we need to break things down in such a way that we can know and be known at a very personal level. That we need a place of belonging. And it occurred to me years ago when we were trying to figure out how to be uh, uh, leaders of a home group that all of these aspects of community we were discussing with regard to home group leadership, that probably the reason it's called a home group is because those were all attributes that would be desirable to see in our homes, but that often some of us have come from homes that lacked that, and our very first experience of community may actually be in the church. And I thought, well, what if we did that the other way around? You know, what if we started talking about what it means to have home be your primary place of belonging? Interestingly, when I went to look up um, various articles, uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to look into loneliness and see if there's anything that's been written on loneliness. Well, my goodness, I couldn't cut it down to one particular article. Even just in the past six months, there were so many articles to search on what is being called the loneliness epidemic that our culture is facing. One of the ones that I found that was particularly interesting was an online survey that was done of 20,000 adults And what they found in in the survey on loneliness was that younger adults in particular, those who were born between 1990 and 2000, so actually that's, that's my kids, right? That they were more prone to loneliness than those who were a generation older than them. 54% of the respondents to this survey said that they sometimes or always feel that no one knows them well. 56% of respondents said that the people they spend time around are not necessarily with them 
So in other words, they're not alone in the literal sense of the word, but they are alone together with their peers, that even when they are in proximity to one another, they are not having meaningful relationship. Two out of five respondents reported a lack of meaningful relationships and companionship, saying that they are isolated from others. We have a loneliness epidemic And so I think that for families, it's important that we ask, how are we being strategic about how we are making sure that our homes are places where we are not home alone, so to speak? Because we were created for community. We were created, it's in the, the, you can hear it in the great commandment that we were created to love God and to love others. And if you think about it, our God, uh, our triune God, there is community in the Trinity itself. And in fact, God's very first statement on human relationships, right? Genesis 2.18 is a statement that deals with what? Aloneness. It is not good for the man to be alone. We are created for community in the very first place where we begin to learn or where we could and should learn an appreciation for it is in our home of origin, So maybe your home of origin was not a place of deep and abiding community. But let's see if perhaps the homes that are represented in this room, we might be able to look for some markers that are common to any community and apply them to our home environments. Now, the Christian community in particular, we are not left to wonder what it should look like because the Bible gives us 59 one another's that tell us about what it means to live in relationship with one another. But we are often only thinking about those in terms of our peers instead of in terms of those people who we are in community with in our homes. So I want us to look at these and and, and evaluate them in light of the one another's of Scripture and see if we can't draw some principles from them. So communities, any community, whether it is like a town or whether it is uh, a city or uh, an organization, communities always share some different attributes. And the ones that we're going to look at are that they share rules, they share responsibilities, they share language, they share affection, they share time, and in the case of the communities we're talking about, but in the case of many communities, they also share faith, they share common beliefs. So first of all, let's talk about how we can seek to build community through shared rules. Mark 9.50 says, be at peace with one another. 1 Peter 3.8 says, live in harmony with one another. But when we think about rules, we often think of, well, that's no fun. I would have rather avoid those. But what is the purpose of rules? The whole purpose of rules in a community is that we might be able to be at peace with one another, that we might be able to live in harmony with one another. In fact, if you think about it, when the family of God was newly birthed, just passed through the parted waters of the Red Sea and into the wilderness and out to Mount Sinai, what is the first thing that God gives to his family? Gives them rules that they might know how to be at peace with one another. And the Christian home should be characterized by rules and by obedience to the rules. Why does obedience matter? It matters in our homes because it trains our children to obey, ultimately, their heavenly father. If your child learns to be obedient to you, there is a higher likelihood that they will learn to be obedient to God. They can see you, and they can't see him. And so in order to train them in what godly obedience might look like, we Ask them to be obedient to us. I said ask. It's really not an ask all the time, is it? 
Why does obedience matter? Because it helps us to desire biblical community with our children. Children who are obedient are children that we actually want to spend time around. Can I get a witness? So it is interesting to me that so often, so I don't know if you've noticed, that there are generational opinions about whether you should be heavy on the rules or not. And so for my father's parents, my mother and father's generation of parenting, it was a very authoritarian parenting style. They were high on rules and they were low on relationship. What would you say is the current style of parenting that we see predominantly today? That's right. What I hear most commonly from young parents is deep concern to preserve relationship with their children, but not a strong understanding that rules are actually not an obstacle to that. They are the mechanism by which that happens. And so when we think about rules, we should not think of them as being opposed to relationship, but actually the vehicle by which relationship is ensured. They do not exist in opposition to one another. High relationship and high rules are what we want in our homes. But we don't always want a high appreciation of the rules that you, the parent, are responsible for monitoring. Over the lifetime of your child, you want a love of the rules to become an internal thing for them, not you constantly policing them. One of the funniest things that happened as our kids got older, most of the couples in our church are younger than us, they're about 10 years behind us. So my kids got to high school and I would get asked, so are you going to let your kids do X, Y, or Z? And, and I, I had to say, hey, by the time they're in high school, it's not about what I'm letting them do and not do anymore. Hopefully the hard work that we did up front has gotten them to a place where now we're in that consulting phase and we're saying, well, you have this option and you have this option. What do you think will happen if you go with option A versus option B? Because you want a child to be self-governing by the time that they are ready to leave the home. But how do you get them prepared for that? You do that by making sure that early obedience is something that happens in your home. Most parents think when they're dealing with a toddler who does not want to comply perfectly, maybe you've had one or six, they think, well, you know what, that behavior bothers me, but, you know, I'm I'm beat down. Like, we, we, we always underestimate the resolve of a small child. Have you noticed that? Like, they're born and we're like, I can take them. And then you get to like two and a half and you're like, no, no. There was way more there than I thought. (laughs) But early obedience matters. It matters that we be consistent in setting an expectation and working toward it because, listen to this, moral development starts around age one, and it is set not by age 18. It is set by age 10 or 11. You don't have 18 years. And so if we wait until a child is five to begin reeling things in and trying to get that child to toe the line, we've actually abdicated about half of the time that we have to help instill in them a sense of what is right and what is wrong. And a lot of parents, younger parents, have heartburn around, well, I don't want to give them a rule if they don't understand why they have to obey it. And so they're down in little Jimmy's face going, now, Jimmy, let me tell you why it's important for you to pick up your socks, okay? It's really important for you to pick up your socks because blah, 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 and they go on and on, don't throw a fit because, and then they go into the long discussion. And do you know what little Jimmy is thinking? He's thinking, you know, I've had a hard time getting her attention all day long, but she's looking me in the eye and we're talking this out. I'm for it. I'm going to continue that negative behavior so that I can continue to have eye contact and dialogue with this person. If little Jimmy's language skills are not developed enough for dialogue, you just need to tell little Jimmy to pick up his socks and move on with the day. 
When he gets older, if in, plus, I mean, come on, how much explanation do we need for that? But we confuse adult learning styles with child learning styles. You learn to do the right thing because you can reason it through. But a small child developmentally is wired to learn by doing. So they do the right thing, and then the motive follows later as they become developmentally able to attach it. So what kind of obedience are we talking about that we want from our children? We want our children to obey us the way that we obey God, ultimately. We want a joyful obedience out of gratitude, right? Not a grudging obedience out of fear. A joyful obedience out of gratitude, not a grudging obedience out of fear. Why do you obey God's law? Because you fear him and think he will zap you if you don't? No, because you rightly revere him, and not only that, but you're so grateful for what he has done for you, and that you have, what, relationship with him, that your obedience is rooted not in earning favor, but in displaying how grateful you are for the relationship that you have. So that's our ultimate hope. And the way that we can get from grudging obedience out of fear to joyful obedience out of gratitude is to make a careful distinction between punishment and discipline. Because they're not the same thing. So you know you're going to have to give a negative consequence for your child, right? But if we lean toward punishment, we have focused on retribution and a desire for suffering to occur. And the ultimate result of negative consequences that are punishments is that the parent controls the child. So you control them by the fear of what will happen. What we want is discipline. And by contrast to punishment, which is based on retribution and suffering, discipline has to do with training and correction. And the ultimate result of training and correction is not that the parent controls the child, but that the child controls the child. All disciplinary forms are working toward the child being self-governing at the age-appropriate time. And a key difference to know whether something is a punishment or is discipline is asking yourself the question, does this humiliate or does it humble? Discipline will humble, punishment will humiliate. So the kinds of things that humiliate a child, mocking or ridiculing them for failure, bringing up past failures, saying things like, you always do this or you never do that, retelling a child's past failures to another adult who's in the room, or using contemptuous language or gestures in the moment. Seriously? Are you kidding me? Rolling your eyes. Children pick up on these cues and they understand what humiliation means. Or maybe it's correcting them in front of others instead of doing it privately. And this includes siblings. And listen, my kids were all really close in age. I know how hard it is to get a child alone to administer discipline, but it is worth it. And if, it's not, uh, if there's no other way to avoid doing it, then certainly you might need to do something in front of siblings from time to time. But to have a general rule of, I'm going to take this child aside and preserve their dignity by doing um, whatever discipline is required privately. Another way to humiliate is when the consequence exceeds whatever the disobedience was. But consequences that humble discipline is when the consequence is appropriate to the disobedience and the child's dignity is preserved by using an even tone and a loving approach. Restoration and forgiveness are established in the process. 
And as quickly as possible, as your child grows out of the phase where the only way to get their attention is by body blocking them or by perhaps swatting a hand or some other kind of physical form of restriction, you move to natural and logical consequences for what they have done as quickly as possible. Because very quickly, a child moves into an age where a form of corporal punishment becomes a humiliation because they're old enough to feel the shame of it. And frankly, there are far better tools for training your child than corporal punishment that move into um, your toolkit a lot sooner than most of us think. So be looking for natural and logical consequences. So for example, if something is broken, the natural consequence is, well, it's, we, we can't replace it, so you know, I'm sorry. And they learn the lesson uh, through the loss. What we want to do is create consequences that shift the rules from being uh, external to internal. It's not my job to make you behave. You learn to appreciate um, obedience because you see that when you obey, things go well, and when you disobey, things do not go well. So we continue to set a standard even though we know that it will not be met, right? And isn't that the hard part? We just keep putting those rules out there. We do it lovingly, and we understand there will be one million repetitions, and maybe one million and one. And we stand ready to offer ready forgiveness when there is failure, and to say, let's try it again. The goal is to raise a child who says, oh, how I love thy law. Don't you want, listen, you know what you can't do? You can't raise a believing child. You know that, right? That's up to the Holy Spirit. So really, you're faced with a dilemma. You can raise a lawless child or you can raise a lawful child. Which one do you think serves the community of faith? Which one do you think honors the Lord? And so we want to raise children who we have such high relationship with, and I'll get to more about that in just a minute, that they learn to love, to say, as David said, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Law is not an opposition to grace. Law and grace walk hand in hand. They establish harmony and they allow us to live at peace with one another. So community through rules, every community that you have ever been a part of had rules that made sure that we lived in peace with one another. Secondly, community through shared responsibility. Galatians 5.13, another one another says, serve one another in love. Galatians 6.2, carry one another's burdens. The home that is focused on building meaningful community will foster responsibility. And the principle that you need to operate by is the reason that I haven't had to do back scratches for my husband in about mm, 14 years. I call it intentional laziness. It is the principle that says, just because I can doesn't mean I should. It means that I'm looking around and asking, what are the things that I have been doing myself that if I delegate them to a child will be meaningful work for the child, a genuine help to our family, and will train the child in responsibility? But we're not always great at delegating tasks, are we? Anybody hang on to tasks in here? We have a problem with perfectionism and control. We want it to be done right. We have a problem with the time management factor. I can do it faster myself. Why would I have you fold your clothes? Because it will be an absolute disaster. Uh, there's a lot of guilt built in around this. I'm the mom. I should do it. 
there's a need to be needed. Jimmy loves it when I make his sandwich and fold his underwear. I know he's 42, but he really enjoys it. <laughs> or it's because we have overscheduled kids, and so we're like, well, he's got baseball practice, so I'll just do it. You know, your kid is not going to need to know how to bunt to be a successful human. He is going to need to know how to do his laundry. So attached to the idea of intentional laziness, handing things off as quickly as age appropriate, is the idea of intentional cheapness. Just because we can pay someone to do it doesn't mean we should. I have the cleanest baseboards, or at least I did until my children left for college. So we want to cultivate responsibility by delegating age-appropriate chores to our children, care, personal possessions, pets, etc., stewardship of money. These are all things that we should be thinking about. And the child needs this because part of being in the community is knowing that your contributions to the community matter. So these are not just things that we do symbolically. We want to give children jobs that are real responsibility so that they know I am a part of the work of the home. I'm a genuine contributing member. They are more than symbolic. Now let's talk about community being built through shared language. Hebrews 10.25 says, Encourage one another. Do not slander one another, is James 4.11. James 5.9 says, Don't grumble against each other. So we are to have a certain shared language understanding that helps the community in our home to function. A basic principle of communication that can guide you in building community in the home is this. Good communication begins with good listening. You need to be a good listener. Uh, James 1.19 says, let us be what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Imagine if that were your watchword with the way that you dealt with your children. Instead of being quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to become angry. Our touchstone with communication with our children should be to treat our children as our neighbors. Are you tempted to speak to your child in a way that you would not speak to anyone else that you know? Children are worthy of being treated with dignity even when we are in conflict, even when we are tired. We need to remember that we should treat them with the same level of respect we would give to others, which implies at the minimum we would treat them with common courtesy in the way that we speak to them. We need to remember to model good conversation in the home. Every parent is freaked out about talking about sex and faith. Those are the two things that they're like. Those are the big talks. And my suggestion to you is create a climate of conversation in your home that means that those conversations are not big conversations. They're one of many small conversations that you have that builds trust over time with your children. This means that we will need to pay attention to some key communication skills, like maintaining eye contact with our kids. When we ask questions of them when they come home from school, you want to ask a specific question versus a general question. Don't say, how was your day? Say, who did you sit next to today at the lunch table? Because what you want is not just a climate of conversation, you want a climate of dialogue. And often we get into a pattern as parents of only lecturing. We see ourselves as the great trainer on high, and we're always saying, you need to do this, or do this, or don't do that. But what we're not doing is inviting them into the conversation. And so even when you are giving a command for a child who is old enough, instead of saying for the 45th time, pick up your shoes, you can say, Jimmy, look at mom. What should you do right now? Because he knows. Jimmy knows. 
And what have you done? You've kept it where he needs to respond. He's owning his part of the conversation. And rather than you lecturing, he is owning responsibility and it still maintains dialogue. We need to protect the sacred spaces that most of us tend to fill with entertainment. The times of waiting in restaurants or car trips that we fill with screen time or some other device that shuts down all the conversation. We need to understand that most opportunities that involve waiting are opportunities either to train our children in dialogue or to entertain them to where we've missed the opportunity. Screens, lecturing, you being distracted, you being tired, these are all things that will push against your ability to have a climate of conversation. But communities are defined by shared language. And the, our dialogue should be shaped by these one another's. They should be colored by encouragement, by words that build up, by a lack of grumbling. And there are other markers too when we talk about faith in just a minute. Fourth, consider building community through shared affection. The command, love one another, is the one another you see the most. It occurs 11 times in the New Testament. We are told that Christians will be recognized by the way that they love one another, so also in the Christian home. But within the Christian home, like everywhere else, the, the joke applies that, that applies in ministry. Ministry would be great if it weren't for all the people. Well, the same thing is true in our families, right? Because let's be honest, sometimes your kid's personality drives you nuts, and often you have one kid who you really like for a while and another kid who you're like, I would sell that one to the gypsies. <laughs> what do we do with personality differences? Well, we need to be careful that we avoid comparisons with other children. You don't want to say, why can't you be more like so-and-so outside of our home? But even worse, you don't want to say, why can't you be more like your brother? When it comes to favoritism, we need to understand that every child in your home is your favorite. Calvin is my favorite Calvin. Mary-Kate is my favorite Mary-Kate. Claire is my favorite Claire. Matt is my favorite Matt. We look for the things to celebrate because the thing that drives you crazy about your child is probably the thing that will either be their greatest strength or their greatest weakness. And depending on how you respond to it, you will push them one, one direction or the other. Your mouthy kid is probably going to be an attorney who does fantastic things or they're going to go to prison for being a jerk. You like how I thought that illustration through really hard before I got out of here? <laughs> the thing that drives you crazy about your child, ask yourself, how might this turn into a positive attribute if I don't respond by shutting them down and making them feel terrible? What if I looked for a way to steward that toward a strength? Look for ways to affirm and reinforce each child's uniqueness. Each one has equal value but brings a different role to your home. And customize your discipline and your communication style and your one-on-one -on -one time based on your child's unique personality. Watch out for stereotyping. Don't say he's just like his dad. Let that child be an individual. Let them develop into who they are. If you want to say he's just like his dad in a positive way, that can be a wonderful way to build community. But also, we tend to start thinking differently about someone once we've put the guardrails around them. Give your child room to be their own person. Along these lines, if we're going to have shared affection in the home, as I've spoken of elsewhere, it will be important for us to say that sibling rivalry is not something we will tolerate. And we should look for ways for our children to be together more when sibling rivalry erupts instead of the, the thing that is our natural reaction, which is to separate them. 
Look for ways for them to share time together that they might grow in their love for one another. Because as my husband always says to our kids, he would say, do you know who I sat next to in the third grade, my best friend in the third grade? And they'd say, no. And he'd say, yeah, I don't remember who that kid was either. You know who I still know? My sister Emily, and she's my best friend. And she and I are going to help with our aging parents. We will be together always. And so before you go play with the kid down the road, if you can't establish peace between you and your sibling in the home, let's find some more things for the two of you to do together first. Fifth, shared time, community built through shared time. This is perhaps the most obvious one. We need to have shared interests and experiences with our kids. And what is it that militates against shared time? Well, it's all those other things that are out there for our kids to do. So... How many things are you going to put your child in that pulls them outside of the home? That doesn't mean that our kids would never be involved in activities, but it means that because we're Christian parents and not just average parents, we're going to weigh those things carefully, and we're not just going to ask, is this good for little Jimmy? We're going to ask, what is the effect on the whole family if little Jimmy is involved in this particular thing? Because any activity that anyone in the family is involved in will have a cumulative effect and what I find often is that families are completely overscheduled because over time they've layered one thing on over another and not gone back to evaluate. Before you know it, there's no more family dinner and there's no more times where we're sitting around just talking to one another and we're not getting to bed on time and we're all going in different directions and we are not in the same place at the same time just to enjoy sharing each other's company. It's often been reflected that quality time, that unicorn we all want with our children, is a function of quantity time. We parents are the gatekeepers for our children's calendars and for our own. And if our families are overscheduled, we can only look to ourselves to ask questions. But let's do it. Let's preserve the time that we have together as precious. We should ask these questions about our entertainment. Is our entertainment individual or family focused? When we decide to watch a movie, is each person watching their own movie or do we sit down and watch something together? Do we each listen to our own music or do we do these things together? Should be a mix of both, right? But to see where your lean is, what is the thing you more commonly tend toward? Because I'll tell you what everybody's marketing to you, individualism. What about your church experience? Are you together or apart? How might you redo the way you do Sunday so that you worship together as a family? Lastly, community through shared faith. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. James 5.16 says, Pray for one another. James 5.16, Confess your sins to one another. Ephesians 4.32, Forgive one another. These are all very important functions for us to have as we have a shared faith in our home. But here's a question for all of us because we're Southern Baptists. How can you have shared faith in the home if you're not sure if little Jimmy has asked Jesus into his heart yet? Be very careful. Ask yourself some hard questions about what it means to be a Christian home. The Great Commission is a call to make what? disciples. And yet so often as parents and even as Christians, but this is how it plays out in our home, we're actually sort of obsessed with making not disciples but converts. And my question for you would be, how would you parent little Jimmy differently if he had come to you and told you that he had prayed the prayer than you would have if he had not said that? 
Because it's a dangerous situation when we have been the fruit inspector in our home trying to decide which child has faith and which child does not so that then I can talk to him one way about grace and repentance and him another way about grace and repentance. And we can very quickly put ourselves in a position that is perceived by the other children in the home to be favoritism instead of a nuance of the faith. Why does she always treat him differently when he does something wrong? And I would urge you as parents of Christian homes, rather than making converts and letting disciples happen, make disciples and let converts happen. The message, repent and believe, is good for those who are not yet saved and for those who are. And so as we parent and want to display the gospel to our children, be less concerned with identifying whether your child is in the kingdom or out. And put forward the message, repent and believe with the confidence that everyone, including mom and dad, needs to hear it over and over again. Pray, pray for your children and with your children. Model, you know that actions speak louder than words. Be sure that your children see you pray and worship and read. If you're having your quiet time after they're in bed, maybe move it around so that they get to witness it. Let your children see you repent and mature. They need that modeling. They need to know it's safe for them to do the same. And direct your children. Start small, but definitely start. Look for ways to begin the rhythms of what it means to be a family of faith in your home. Think of creative ways to bring your faith home to your children. And above all else, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, even your parenting paths. If we want community in the home that is the community of the Christian home, we will be characterized by rules, responsibility, language, affection, time, and faith that are all shared. The church is the family of God, isn't it? What does Jesus say to his disciples in the New Testament? He says, who is my mother and my father and my brothers? He says, it's those who do the will of the Lord. The church is for many of us the family that we did not have. It is the true and better family, to rip off a phrase we hear a lot. But for those of us who are earnest about raising children in a Christian home, wouldn't it be great if their maturity into the family of God was like a homecoming instead of the first time that they knew what it meant to be in deep community. Your child's primary place of belonging should be the home. That does not mean that they never leave your home, everyone exhale. It means that once they do leave, they are always glad to return to it because they know that it is a place where so much is shared and where the word of God has been lifted high. May our homes be places where community is a beautiful attribute we hold high, where we look for what is shared and we celebrate what is shared and we develop a family identity that is so strong that no matter what else the world is telling us, We know, in this place, I am not alone. You can vaccinate your child 
against the epidemic of loneliness when you cultivate godly and Christ-centered community in the home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the parents represented here and the high task that you have given to them. What a joy it is to know and to be known. We pray, Father, that you would help us to share and value the things that you value. Help us, Lord, to love your law and to teach it to our children when we lie down and when we rise up and when we sit in our homes and when we walk by the wayside. Lord, may we be raising children who know what it is to repent and believe because they have seen it worked out in our own lives and they've learned it in the joy of deep and abiding community in the home. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. For more of our event messages, visit ERLC.com or subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget to tune in next week for a discussion about caring for aging parents.